The Dawn of Mercy, a retreat guide on divine mercy. Introduction. Violence, hatred, injustice, it takes heroic fortitude just to turn on the daily news. And this evil isn't abstract, it has a name. Events in society mirror a reality we all face every day. It's called sin, it's ugly, and it's horrifically destructive. Have you ever wondered if there's a limit to this evil? Does it simply surge unchecked, leaving broken lives strewn in its wake? Does sin have the last word in my own life and in the life of the world? In Memory and Identity, St. John Paul II said, The limit imposed upon evil, of which man is both perpetrator and victim, is ultimately the divine mercy. What is this divine mercy, and what does it mean? Even more importantly, does it make a difference in my life? How do I receive it? These questions have an answer, and that answer is a person. Evil, the fruit of sin, does not have the last word. There is a word more powerful than sin, more powerful than evil. Jesus Christ is the word of the Father who came to bring us forgiveness, healing, and union with God. Divine mercy is when God's love in Jesus meets our brokenness. With that in mind, here's a brief overview of the Dawn of Mercy, a retreat guide on divine mercy. In the first meditation, we'll explore the dawn of the devotion to the divine mercy in the midst of the 20th century's horrific evil. In the second meditation, we'll reflect on how divine mercy meets each one of us individually. In the conference, we'll look at divine mercy as an offer and a response and examine some practical consequences. Let's quiet our hearts now. Let's turn to Jesus who came to call sinners and ask him to show us the merciful face of the Father. First Meditation, The Dawn of Mercy, Introduction. The 20th century should have been blissful. In 1914, the industrialized world of Europe and North America enjoyed unprecedented economic prosperity. Scientific advances such as electricity and automobiles promised a giddying future of efficiency and interconnectedness. And then the guns of August began firing, and the world was plunged into the heart of darkness. Sin is not redeemed by technology. World War I, World War II, Hitler, Stalin, Mao Zedong, Pol Pot. Could there be any limit to the evil that washed over the world? God answered that question, and he answered it especially through three modern saints. Saints, after all, are human beings. They live in a specific historical setting with specific life experiences and a specific mission. Number 828 of the Catechism of the Catholic Church puts it like this. The saints have always been the source and origin of renewal in the most difficult moments of the Church's history. Holiness is the hidden source of her apostolic activity and missionary zeal. If saints are the source and origin of renewal, what renewal did God reveal by means of these three saints? 
Mercy ensures that evil doesn't have the last word. Through these saints, God shared his mercy in a new way. St. Therese of Lisieux. St. Therese died in 1897, and her message of mercy was prophetic. In her late 19th century France, religious education often presented God as a judge, quick to demand justice from sinners. St. Therese, though, intuited that this could not be the true, or at least the complete, picture of God. Sacred scripture, her prayer, and the example of her own father led her to a different conclusion. She expressed this through a prayer she wrote in 1895. At the time, it was common for the Carmelites in France to offer themselves as victims of divine justice. They would offer to suffer God's wrath in place of this or that sinner. But St. Therese preferred something else, and she prayed, If your justice loves to release itself, this justice which extends only over the earth, how much more does your merciful love desire to set souls on fire, since your mercy reaches to the heavens? I offer myself to your merciful love. And at the end of her autobiography, Story of a Soul, just a few months before her death at the age of 24, she was moved to write, Yes, I feel it. Even though I had on my conscience all the sins that can be committed, I would go, my heart broken with sorrow, and throw myself into Jesus' arms. For I know how much he loves the prodigal child who returns to him. Her confidence in divine mercy foreshadowed the great message of mercy that God would proclaim in the 20th century through two Polish saints. St. Faustina Kowalska The first of these was St. Faustina Kowalska. She died at the age of 33 on October 5th, 1938, less than a year before Adolf Hitler invaded her Polish homeland. And her mission in her short life was to proclaim the divine mercy that would limit the impending evil. Faustina was a nun with the Sisters of Our Lady of Mercy in Krakow. Beginning in 1933, Christ granted her a series of apparitions, which at his request, she recorded in a diary now known as Divine Mercy in My Soul. His task for her can be summed up in his words. Today I am sending you with my mercy to the people of the whole world. I do not want to punish aching mankind, but I desire to heal it, pressing it to my merciful heart. Why this message? Why then? Sin, the root of the tremendous evil that battered the 20th century, means turning away from God. When we turn away from light, we open ourselves to darkness. We open ourselves up to the devil's accusations. The word Satan in Hebrew means the accuser, and that's exactly what he does. When I sin, he tries to prompt me to despair, to believe that my sin is unforgivable. And when I experience the effects of someone else's sin, he tries to convince me to redefine my identity according to the wrong done to me. You deserve this. Your life is ruined. God has abandoned you. Either way, if we listen to his accusations, we don't dare to approach God. 
It's not hard to imagine how the agony of the last century provided the devil with a veritable playground for sowing distrust in God. Now it's easier to grasp why Jesus told St. Faustina, Secretary of my most profound mystery, write down everything that I make known to you about my mercy, that those who read these things will be comforted in their souls and will have the courage to approach me. Christ gave Faustina three main tasks. To remind the world of God's infinite mercy. To teach others to pray for that mercy by means of the chaplet of divine mercy. The feast of divine mercy to be celebrated on the first Sunday after Easter. Prayer before the image of divine mercy. And prayer at 3 o'clock p.m., the hour of divine mercy. And to begin the apostolic movement of divine mercy. However, it was another Polish saint who enabled all this to happen. St. John Paul II If anyone experienced firsthand the effects of evil and sin, it was St. John Paul II. When he was 19 years old, the Nazis invaded Germany and many of his friends were killed in the ensuing occupation. The horror of Nazi oppression was finally lifted in 1945, only to be replaced by the equally brutal Soviet regime. John Paul II understood that divine mercy was God's answer, and this became a pillar of his spirituality. In fact, as Pope, he remarked that the message of divine mercy has always been near and dear to me, which I took with me to the Sea of Peter, and which, in a sense, forms the image of this pontificate. He demonstrated that when he beatified and canonized Sister Faustina and declared Divine Mercy Sunday, the Sunday following Easter, to be an official liturgical feast for the entire church. And so it's not surprising that his second encyclical, Dives and Misericordia, is about the God who is rich in mercy John Paul II said that he wrote it to bring this mystery closer to everyone. At the same time, I wish it to be a heartfelt appeal by the church to mercy, which humanity in the modern world needs so much. And they need mercy even though they often do not realize it. He goes on to point out that in heaven, mercy will be revealed as love, while in human history, which is at the same time the history of sin and death, love must be revealed above all as mercy and must also be actualized as mercy. John Paul II wrote those words in 1980. However, he was already looking forward to our own time when he said that the human person, feeble and sinful as he is, often does the very thing he hates and does not do what he wants. And so he feels himself divided. Can't we all relate to that? And so isn't the message of divine mercy needed more than ever? In the next meditation, we'll try to personalize this message. But for now, take some time to reflect on this historical path by which God renewed his call to the suffering human family in the 20th century. The following questions and quotations may help your meditation. Questions for personal reflection or group discussion. 
In what ways does Divine Mercy put a limit to evil in the world? In what ways have I experienced that? Can I identify some of the lies I've bought into? How does the devil try to attack my trust in God's mercy? How could I become more aware of divine mercy working around me? Three quotations to help your meditation. St. Therese of Lisieux, letter to her sister Marie. How can you ask me if it is possible for you to love God as I love him? My desires are not what give me the unlimited confidence that I feel in my heart. Dear sister, how can you say that my desires are the sign of my love? I really feel that it is not this that pleases God in my little soul. What pleases Him is that He sees me loving my littleness and my poverty, the blind hope that I have in His mercy. St. Faustina Kowalska, Divine Mercy in My Soul, number 699. My daughter, tell the whole world about my inconceivable mercy. I desire that the Feast of Mercy be a refuge and a shelter for all souls, and especially for poor sinners. I pour out a whole ocean of graces upon those souls who approach the font of my mercy. St. John Paul II Divas in Misericordia, number 15. Let us call upon the God who cannot despise anything that he has made, the God who is faithful to himself, to his fatherhood and his love. Let us appeal to that love which has maternal characteristics and which, like a mother, follows each of her children, each lost sheep, even if they should number millions even if in the world evil should prevail over goodness. Let us have recourse to that fatherly love revealed to us by Christ in his messianic mission, a love which reached its culmination in his cross, his death and resurrection. Let us have recourse to God through Christ, mindful of the words of Mary's Magnificat, which proclaim mercy from generation to generation. Second Meditation, Mercy Made Mine, Introduction. In the last meditation, we looked at the dawn of divine mercy as a renewed message from God for our modern world. But what does that mean for me? Let's turn to a famous dramatic passage from the Gospel of John to find out. Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. 
The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in their midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such. What do you say about her? They said this to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away, one by one, beginning with the eldest. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus looked up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go and do not sin again. Divine mercy just became very real for this woman. She stands for every person. So let's ask the Holy Spirit to help us understand this gospel passage and to accept God's mercy revealed on the face of Jesus. The Mount of Olives Before any of this started, Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. We know that he spent the night there, since John tells us that he came back to the temple early in the morning. What was he doing up there? The Gospels often mention that Jesus went alone to the Mount of Olives, and each time he goes there to pray. He goes there to be alone with his Father. What would he have prayed about? Each person the Father had given him. The woman caught in adultery was in the heart of God even before Jesus saw her. And Jesus is still praying for us today. He's praying for you and for me. As the letter to the Hebrews puts it, He is able for all time to save those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Let that sink in. Jesus Christ is praying for me. He knows me by name. I am not a stranger to Jesus. I am in his heart. And because of his mercy, I can enter into a relationship with him that changes my life. Court Remember, we never learn this woman's name. She could have been any one of us. In fact, she is any one of us. And whether my own sins seem large or small, they have a common denominator with hers. We're caught. The gospel tells us she was caught in the act of sinning. But doesn't that word caught perfectly express the drama of sin? We want to love and be loved, but sin traps us in a maelstrom of selfishness that we can't escape. Addicts will tell you that they hate their addiction, that they love it at the same time, and that they hate themselves for loving it. They're caught. This is what sin does, and it's like quicksand. We can struggle, but our struggle just seems to make us more aware that we can't escape it. We need help. Imagine what was going through this woman's heart 
shame, self-loathing, and fear must have been crushing her spirit. She knew the penalty for her action. She was caught in every sense of the word, and she couldn't escape. They brought her. It's sickening to see the Pharisees' hypocrisy. They don't care about this woman at all. They simply want to use her to trap Jesus. If he says, no worries, let her go, they can accuse him of undermining the law. If he says, what are you waiting for, stone her, it will contradict his message of mercy. But think about this. Even though their intention is evil and they simply want to shame and stone this woman, they bring her to Jesus. Oftentimes in our lives, what seems like unmitigated evil brings us to Jesus. Even the evil actions of others against us can bring us to him in ways we can't foresee. Our own sins bring us on our knees before Jesus. We can forgive others and allow God to forgive us if we recognize this fact. After all, God's power is made perfect in weakness. Let him who is without sin. Bishop Fulton Sheen often preached in prisons. He would frequently begin his homilies by asking the prisoners, do you know what the difference between you and me is? His answer might surprise us since it comes from a holy bishop who is on the path to canonization. According to Bishop Sheen, the difference was that the men in prison got caught and he got away. We are all sinners. We've all turned away from God and chosen to isolate ourselves in our own selfishness. The Pharisees were no exception, but unfortunately they were unable to recognize their own sinfulness. But Jesus will not give up on them. In fact, some commentators say that this is why a few verses earlier, Jesus is writing on the ground. What was he writing? We don't know, but it's possible that he was tracing out their own sins in a way that only they could understand. In any case, when Jesus says, let him who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her, they realize their own hypocrisy and leave one by one. But Jesus does not come to condemn. He comes to set our hearts free, to bring us back to God. Neither do I condemn you. Christ's words must have been etched in this woman's heart for the rest of her life. According to the law, she deserved death, and yet she suddenly finds herself saved. Mercy is always a gift, and so it's always a surprise. If we presume upon mercy, we've lost its true meaning. In your own prayer, spend a few moments with these words of Jesus. Put yourself in the scene. Imagine that you're there, standing before Jesus. He looks at you. What would be in his eyes? Perhaps mercy, strength, joy? What would it be like to hear him say, Neither do I condemn you. With these words, he's opening up a new life for me. I am no longer caught. Someone has found me, and that someone is God. Divine mercy is creative. I'm ransomed and made new. 
Conclusion Go now and sin no more. Because we're made new in Christ, he can say these words to us. Go and sin no more. Does that mean that we'll never sin again? Not unless you're suddenly transformed into a member of the heavenly host. But sin loses its hold over us, and we're no longer caught. Sin is above all an offense against God. If we allow Jesus Christ to look at us in our sinfulness, we realize that we're not alone, that he forgives our offense. Sin's grip on our hearts fades, and divine mercy takes its place. Bring this to Jesus now and speak with him about whatever resonated most in your heart. The following questions and quotations might help your conversation with him. Questions for personal reflection or group discussion. What does it mean in my own life to be caught in sin? Were there moments in my life when I found myself brought to God in unexpected and even negative ways? What could God have wanted to show me in that? In what ways do I feel myself embraced by God's mercy? Perhaps it would be good to write these down for further reflection. Three quotations to help your meditation. St. Therese of Lisieux, Story of a Soul. To me, he has granted his infinite mercy, and through it I contemplate and adore the other divine perfections. All of these perfections appear to be resplendent with love, even his justice, and perhaps this even more so than the others, seems to me clothed in love. What a sweet joy it is to think that God is just, that he takes into account our weakness, that he is perfectly aware of our fragile nature. What should I fear then? Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor requite us according to our iniquities. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. Bless the Lord, O my soul.
Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 through 13. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he sat at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Conference, Mary Consoles Eve. Introduction. Some names possess astonishing beauty. And of all Mary's many titles, one of the most thrilling is Mother of Mercy. It's a name we can relate with easily. Every mother embodies mercy and compassion. And the mother of God must do that even more powerfully than other mothers. It's no accident that Pope John Paul II, who was so instrumental in promoting the message of divine mercy, was deeply devoted to Mary. In fact, the motto of his papal coat of arms was totus tuus, all yours, which is taken from St. Louis de Montfort's act of consecration to the Blessed Virgin Mary. But why is Mary the mother of mercy? One answer is that she's the mother of Jesus, the mercy of the Father made incarnate. Another is that she always points out our needs to Christ. Think of the way she interceded for the couple at the wedding at Cana. However, there's another reason, too. Mary is the mother of mercy because she received God's mercy in a unique way. Yes, Mary was conceived without sin, but the Immaculate Conception itself was a gift of God's mercy. As Pope Pius IX put it, the Most Blessed Virgin Mary, in the first instance of her conception, by a singular grace and privilege granted by Almighty God, in view of the merits of Jesus Christ, the Savior of the human race, was preserved from all stain of original sin. Because Mary was, and is, so aware of the tremendous gift of divine mercy, she's also able to help us accept it and share it. New Eve, Old Eve The fathers of the church described Mary as the new Eve. The first Eve was meant to be the mother of all the living who handed on a friendship with God to her descendants. But there was that incident with the forbidden fruit in the Garden of Eden and things went awry. Mary then is the new Eve, the mother of all those who are redeemed and live a new life in Christ. If anyone is unworthy of mercy, it would seem to be Eve. Well, Adam is right up there too. After all, she lived in paradise, and all she had to do was obey God in order to keep it for the rest of us. But she didn't. Remember, though, divine mercy is a gift. None of us deserves it, not even Mary. What would happen if Mary met Eve? 
And what lessons could we learn for our own lives from such an encounter? The meaning. Sister Grace Remington provides a beautiful interpretation of what that meeting would look like in her drawing, Mary Consoles Eve. Before we continue, take a moment and look up Mary Consoles Eve on the internet. Let's consider its various elements. First of all, let's look at the scenery. Mary and Eve are standing before a doorway made of living trees, which could be the entrance to a garden. Actually, Gate of Heaven is one of Mary's titles, and she leads us to Christ. Perhaps the garden refers to the Garden of Eden, which is restored to all of us in the garden where Christ rose from the dead. The trees are ripe with fruit. Life is bursting forth everywhere. But Eve is still clutching that small, sorry apple. She presses it to her heart. She's afraid to let it go and receive the gift that God wants to give her. Isn't this the perfect depiction of sin? I don't trust God to make me happy, and I try to grasp happiness for myself. I know that sin makes me miserable, and yet I'm afraid to let it go. It's like Gollum's precious in The Lord of the Rings. Sin torments us, and yet it's so hard to let it go. She's disheveled and ashamed, afraid to look into Mary's eyes. She's longing to look up, and yet she doesn't dare. Isn't that our experience sometimes too? Am I ashamed of being a sinner? Am I ashamed to let myself be seen? She has some sort of band around her head reminiscent of a crown, but it seems to be a mockery now, a pathetic tribute to the glory she threw away by her sin. And Satan, the accuser, is there. The snake wrapped around Eve's leg reminds us that Eve is caught. But Eve is not alone. What can we learn from Mary? In one hand, Eve is still grasping the apple, but Mary has taken her other hand and is pressing it to her womb. Mary is pregnant. Divine mercy is about to be born into the world. God wants to be that close to me, a sinner. Can an apple really compare to a relationship with Jesus Christ? Mary's right hand is caressing Eve's face. That's a physical expression of what's on Mary's face. Look at the love and the tenderness on her face, and especially in her eyes. Finally, do you notice what Mary's doing to the snake? She's crushing its head, and yet she's not even looking at it. She's looking directly into Eve's eyes, as though to say, Don't worry, God is greater than sin. He can take care of this. Mary is also crushing the snake's throat. Satan's lies are silenced. And finally, although the snake's tail still encircles Eve's leg, the coils are starting to slip off. We continue to experience sin's effects, but Jesus is truly setting us free. For me, Here are some lessons for our own lives. First, we are all sinners. Welcome to the club, it's called the human race. St. Paul himself said, I am the greatest of sinners. 
can we really pretend we're any different? And yet, when we acknowledge our sinfulness to God, it sets us free. We no longer have to be perfect as we imagine perfection. We only have to accept his mercy. Second, draw near to Jesus. The church gives us the sacrament of reconciliation. Let's use it. We actually have another retreat guide dedicated entirely to that sacrament. Eve needed to be close to Jesus in order to experience mercy, and the same is true for us. Christ is waiting for us in the Eucharist. Perhaps we could resolve to attend daily Mass several times a week and dedicate a specific time each week to Eucharistic adoration. And remember, Christ is the one who invites us to come to him. He wants this even more than we do. Third, we need to let go of that apple. What is it for me? Maybe it's something large, like some habitual serious sin. Or maybe it's a subtle attitude, like a prideful disposition towards others. Either way, let's ask the Holy Spirit to help us to know what it is and why it has such a grip on us. Ask to see it through God's eyes. Remember, his vision of us is so positive. When God looks at us, he sees the saints we were created to be. A daily examination of conscience is essential for this. We have several books about how to do the examine prayer in the recommended reading list at the end of the retreat guide. Fourth, God is greater than sin. When the weight of sin, my own or others, burdens me, I need to recall this truth. It becomes a habitual outlook, tying into what St. Paul calls the hope that does not disappoint. The snake's coils are still wrapped around Eve's leg, but they're slipping off. My true identity is not sin. My true identity is a beloved child of God in Jesus Christ. Fifth, ask Mary for help. She's our mother of mercy. She helped Eve accept divine mercy in the drawing we just saw, and she'll help us to do the same. Mercy received, mercy poured out. There's one last point, though. Mary received divine mercy, and she doesn't keep it for herself. She shares it with Eve. God has mercy on us. We're called to be merciful to others. Mary doesn't berate Eve. She doesn't say, you really messed up. You may as well abandon any hope of forgiveness. Nor does she say, what you did doesn't really matter. Neither approach is merciful. Instead, she brings her to Christ. Remember, sin is above all an offense against God. And yet God, the one who is offended by my sins, is merciful to me. And if I've been forgiven so much, how can I refuse mercy to others? But what if they don't ask for forgiveness? Christ on the cross gives us the answer when he prays, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Those who brutally killed the Son of God didn't request forgiveness, but Jesus offered them mercy nonetheless. It's also important to recall that when I forgive those who sin against me, I'm not condoning their actions. I'm entrusting them to God's mercy, and as I do that, I'm bringing them to Christ. 
But when I refuse to be merciful to others, I also close myself off to mercy. What happens to a river when the water doesn't flow anymore? It becomes a stagnant pond. Mercy is like water. If it doesn't move on to others, it languishes. When it's shared, it becomes an ever greater source of joy for the one who shares it. Conclusion The Dawn of Mercy We've covered a lot of ground in this retreat, and it's important for each person to take what resonated and reflect on it. We can always grow in our gratitude for divine mercy and in our confidence in God. A retreat doesn't end with the last talk. In fact, this is just the beginning of a deeper friendship with Christ, the incarnate mercy of the Father. And so the sin we see on the news and in our own lives doesn't have the last word. In fact, St. Augustine said that as we are, so are the times. And that means that society changes one life at a time. As each one of us accepts divine mercy and shares that with others, the dawn of mercy becomes a bit brighter. The following questions may help you discern what attitudes and practical resolutions our Lord is inspiring in your heart. Personal Questionnaire What does it mean for me to say, I am a sinner? What sort of reaction does that cause, and what could that mean? What is my attitude towards the Sacrament of Reconciliation? Is it a joyful experience of salvation, or more like drudgery? Why? What's my apple? Why do I want to cling to it? In what ways can I show mercy to others? Who is that one person who needs my mercy and how can I share it? What's my relationship with Mary, Mother of Mercy? How can I grow in this? List two or three practical resolutions from this retreat. For example, I will read one of the recommended books, or I will go to confession once a month, recalling that I'm meeting divine mercy face to face. I will forgive in my heart someone who may have hurt me. Is there an appropriate way I can express that forgiveness? I will pray the Chaplet of Divine Mercy every day.
Further reading. Divine Mercy in My Soul. The Diary of St. Faustina Kowalska. Story of a Soul by St. Therese of Lisieux. The second greatest story ever told. Now is the time of mercy. By Father Michael Gately. The Examine Prayer by Father Timothy Gallagher. Human Frailty, Divine Redemption by Father Marco Rupnik. If you liked this retreat, please help support future retreat guides by making a donation at rcspirituality.org. Retreat guides are a service of Regnum Christi and the Legionaries of Christ. Regnumchristi.org, legionofchrist.org. Retreat guides are produced by Coronation, coronationmedia.com.